2: Hi guys, this is Zach Twomley from When Diplomacy Fails Just a reminder that When Diplomacy Fails is a member of the Agora Podcast Network And the Agora Podcast Network is full of loads of other wonderful podcasts That you should, by all means, check out From The History of England, which you I'm sure know very well and love very much As well as the more recent addition to the network The History of Islam Which you should also check out as is customary, every month, the Agora Podcast Network chooses to shine a new spotlight on a specific podcast for the sake of publicity and pointing you towards it if you're not that aware of it. Last week, we established that the month of February is celebrating the wonderful nature of Tom Daly and his American Biography podcast. American Biography is kind of a jack-of-all-trades podcast when it comes to American history, It looks at figures that may not be as well known, but is also not afraid to delve into the more well-known characters that American history has produced. With that in mind, I would also like to inform you of the fact that the majority of my listeners are in fact American. And that, I'm sure you are all very much in favour of listening to The Odd Biography now and then. In case you can't see where this is going, you should definitely check out American Biography. With that being said... I would like you all to relax and enjoy the show as we take you to mid-December 1877. Thanks for listening. When Diplomacy Fails presents Britain Goes to War An in-depth examination of the British Empire from the closing stages of the Victorian era to the opening phases of the First World War and beyond. Section 2. Background. Part A. The Golden Age. Chapter 16 With the fall of Pleven and the collapse of the Ottoman defence, the Russian capture of Constantinople appeared imminent by early December 1877. If Russia was to capture the capital of the Ottoman Empire, it would represent a turning point not just in the history of empires, but in the history of religion. For centuries, Islamic civilization had battered on the walls of the Byzantine Empire's capital, And since its fall in 1453, the Ottoman Empire had terrified the Christian West. By 1877 though, and in fact many, many years before that, the Ottoman Empire's terrific momentum had stalled and its force had retreated across the world. With this retreat came a simultaneous Western resurgence, as Europe's empires expanded across the world and within the continent, and its technological and economic advances enabled them to outpace their once fearsome foe. The tables were almost certainly recognized as turned by the time Benjamin Disraeli surveyed the situation, but what the Russians seemed poised to do next would break this table into smithereens. Ending the Ottoman Empire would almost certainly result from a prolonged, most likely permanent occupation of Constantinople. Such a change in the world was not something Disraeli felt ready for. He did not feel that the world was ready for such a significant shift. The solution which the Prime Minister had long posed, even before Russia seemed destined to achieve such greatness and its Tsar, Alexander II, achieved such immortality, was direct British intervention. The Russians could not be expected to leave such an advantageous location once they had gotten there, especially since they had been edging towards such a location for years. No, as far as Disraeli was concerned, the best policy was to prevent them from getting near the Ottoman capital in the first place. The best policy was to make war, or at the very least, threaten war. For months he had suggested and pressed for just such a policy. All the while, he had come up against the concerns of his cabinet colleagues, who themselves were best represented by Disraeli's once great friend, the Foreign Secretary, Lord Darby. Darby's view of the situation was far more complex than that of Disraeli's. Though he appreciated that the capture of Constantinople would be upsetting to foreign opinion and would certainly spell doom for Ottoman credibility, to him it was entirely possible that none of these eventualities would even come to pass. The Russians, though they had finally defeated an Ottoman force of significance, had been badly bloodied during the siege and were in need of reinforcement. The Turks had proved their mettle and the Russians had proved their own unpreparedness for the whole endeavour. Darby, though he had been wrong before, believed that the Russians would settle for a lesser victory rather than continue and risk collapse at the front or revolt at home. Adrianople was where he expected them to remain. To him it seemed highly unlikely that Russia could mobilise enough men to reach Constantinople, let alone besiege it and take it. Darby blamed the public mood for the incredible increase in popularity that war seemed to suddenly enjoy. It was the public that made grand statements, the public that understood not the reality of the situation nor the complications within it. To Darby, war was the antithesis of conservative foreign policy. He had inherited this belief from his conservative ancestors that such men should make it their business to consider all possibilities before approving of a policy. Reactionary was the last byword Darby wished to abide by, and yet it was this very term that had characterised his old friend Disraeli's way of thinking. How could the conservative Tory and the reactionary-interfering-expansionist, prestige-obsessed Tory coexist in one party? How could such a party focus its energies on a singular policy to present to the world and public with what was essentially a civil war occurring in the conservative ranks. The answer, as we have gathered from previous episodes, was that they simply could not. It was only because the Russo-Turkish war had been so mercifully uneventful that Disraeli's government had been spared the pains of making such tough decisions, but Disraeli would surely have known that although the fall of Pleven meant good things for his own policy line, It also meant that tough negotiations and the disintegration of both personal and professional relationships were in store. Darby had long assumed that though the people of Britain might talk a big game, when it came down to it, with increases in taxes, the drafting of their loved ones, and the inevitable teething problems that the Crimean War had taught British statesmen to be wary of, the war would stop at words and would not erupt into actual conflict. His own conservative way of thinking influenced this view, but it was one shared by many of his colleagues. The Secretary for India, Lord Salisbury's statement that public Russophobia nowhere nearly rises to income tax point, most clearly expressed the belief that the majority of ministers held. The people could shout loud anti Russian slogans and sing patriotic songs, but when it was a case of war at their expense, which it surely would be, They doubted that the support for it would be maintained. The traditional conservative policy of avoiding adventures like foreign wars had been successful for this reason. Without risking the possibility that the public would turn against the war and then the government, the conservative government could ensure that it remained in power. Darby would have had in mind the example set by none other than his father. When the government led by his father, also Lord Derby, collapsed and a Peelite administration under the Earl of Aberdeen took over in the early 1850s, it led to the Crimean War. Of course, this was a dramatic simplification of events. The Earl of Aberdeen was unfortunate enough to possess a cabinet in the 1850s with seriously questionable motives and ambitions, factors which had far more to do with Britain's entry into the Crimean War than the simple fact that the government wasn't a conservative one. Despite this, to Derby and others, Aberdeen's example represented all that was wrong with the opposition parties, and with the Crimean War's legacy still painfully expressed in world affairs, such an example remained relevant. The war that Aberdeen's government embarked upon had been entered into recklessly, and had resulted in the upturning of that ministry, a ministry in which William Gladstone had held office as Chancellor of the Exchequer. Then, the country had turned against the government as well as the war. This was the fear that Darby and others held so close to heart. To Darby, the Crimean War Part 2 seemed to be happening outside their windows, and the Crimean War continued to resonate because it could still be held up as an example of what happened when the country wasn't ready, the government wasn't united, and the potential for disaster was so high. Darby, as he understood it, was saving the country from this new bout of hysteria that went along with the Russian successes. The only way to prevent the war that threatened to destroy Britain's financial prowess, and the status quo, was to hold true to the old Conservative principles of the past. Principles which had guided Conservative ministers to make tough but also well-advised and cautious decisions, free of risk and doubt. Sometimes, as Darby had duly noted, it was better not to act at all than to put oneself in a difficult position like that which Aberdeen had faced. Whatever Darby liked to tell himself about the past, the problem remained what Disraeli planned to do in the present, and how the foreign secretary would react to it. Unquestionably, Disraeli's greatest ally was Queen Victoria. In terms of moral pressure, Vicky's unrelenting memos and messages to the various members of cabinet about the need to uphold British prestige, the importance of cabinet unity, and the necessity in making a strong stand, pushed a number of ministers off the fence and into the pro-war camp. In terms of practical use though, the previous point should also be considered. With the high stakes involved, ministers were under pressure from their colleagues as well, and these colleagues had far more actual power in terms of voting and constitutionally backed decision making than that of the Queen. In other words, while on paper Disraeli's royal ally might seem like his trump card, more often it didn't have the impact one would expect and when it looked like the Queen was giving her beloved Prime Minister preferential treatment, which she often did, it may have actually cost him political credit. Regardless, Victoria continued to send a barrage of letters to Cabinet Ministers, emphasising time and again the varied points which Disraeli had repeated himself. Whether they had a transformative effect on any Minister is hard to judge, but undoubtedly the game was played with greatest effect in Cabinet meetings. It was during these often uncomfortable sessions that opinions and feelings were debated and compromise was sought. They normally took place in London, but during periods of holidays, such as seasonal ones like the type that the government enjoyed at this crisis period in mid-December 1877, they often took place in informal locations such as a minister's residence, wherein lavish dinners and sometimes parties accompanied the political talk, as the wives made themselves scarce and tensions filled the air. It was at a critical cabinet meeting on the 14th of December 1877, the first held since news of the fall of Plevin, that both camps in cabinet aired their views. Before they had even met, Queen Victoria had filled pages in letters to Disraeli urging him, most emphatically, to be very firm, even if such blustering resulted in the resignation of Derby. Victoria reasoned that, England will never stand to become subservient to Russia, for then she will fall down from her high position and become a second-rate power. The main point of debate for ministers revolved around the recent series of proposals Disraeli had sent them before the 14th meeting. These included, number one, to recall Parliament early, number two, to push through a grant of £5 million aimed at bolstering Britain's armed forces, and number three, to nominate British policy makers as mediators for a Russo-Turkish peace, which must be forced upon the former sooner rather than later. These three points were difficult to swallow for the majority of the 16 cabinet ministers, though six gave their tacit approval, one gave his full approval, and Salisbury was against them only on the grounds that such measures would likely require a form of Turkish alliance. The other seven ministers, which included Darby, were almost wholly opposed, and Darby may even have sensed that he had strength of cabinet behind him, and that, despite all we've come to expect, Disraeli remained unable to rouse all of cabinet behind the more aggressive policy line. You may remember in the last episode we examined the idea of cabinet unity and how important it was to all involved. To Disraeli, this caveat was the one thing he could hold on to because when Darby asserted his position of peace with an unexpected resurgence, Disraeli appreciated that he had lost the first battle. Darby's claim that coupling offers for mediation with an increase in armaments would be contradictory and would never endear London to either belligerent, struck a chord with the Conservative ministers who were on his side, and gave the rest food for thought. Disraeli had lost this battle then, and he had been taken aback by his friend's sudden enthusiasm and passion, but as all promised to meet again on the 17th of December, Disraeli knew that all was not lost. As Derby prepared his conclusive arguments for what was destined to be a significant showdown between the two sides of conservative thought, Disraeli had a visit from the Queen on the 15th. Herein was one of the instances where Victoria demonstrated her favour for her Premier, and seemed to be grinding the gears of a number of ministers in the process. The circulating view among the Peace Party and the Conservative Party was that the party was dividing itself along war and peace lines, and that it needed to return to its more cautious, considerate roots. Many were aghast at how Disraeli had conducted British policy abroad, and they privately pinged letters to Lady Darby, the significant other of the British Foreign Secretary, and a significant lady in her own right. These letters, sent by Peace Party members Northcote, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and the Earl of Carnarvon, the Secretary of State for the Colonies, are highly illuminating. They were proof of nothing less than a coup against Israeli. Should Darby establish himself as a viable alternative leader for the party, many ministers within the cabinet would declare themselves for the new premier, and a potential power struggle could be underway, the results of which were far from certain. Darby had the family pedigree, the image of being just conservative enough to please the traditionalists, and just liberal enough to please the reformers. He was young enough, at 51, to possess the energy to lead, but old enough to possess the necessary experience and wisdom at the same time. Lady Darby wrote to Carnarvon on the 15th of December, 1877, as the Queen and Disraeli dined, that Lord D holds the key of the position, and that Northcote has written most strictly confidentially, so much so that I scarce ought to tell you, saying that he and others will follow Lord D if he will make a counter-proposal. That day Northcote wrote to Salisbury, declaring that if Darby would only rouse himself to take a lead or give us a line of his own, then he would find a good backing in cabinet, but that it was impossible to continue without a policy or with nothing more than a non-possumus, or, in other words, a policy of we cannot. In other words, ministers wanted Darby to take charge of the situation and propose a line that the whole party would follow as its official policy, rather than just declaring against Disraeli's ideas. This policy of non-possumus, we cannot, which Darby followed, came across as less effective because Darby was fundamentally unwilling to go against Disraeli on a personal level, and this unwillingness came as much from his lack of ambition for the premiership as it did from his lack of desire to go against his friend. Such a stance, which Darby had reiterated time and again, did not prevent ministers from theorising what the Conservative Party could do if Darby would only swallow such objections. But at the end of the day, Darby's desire was simply not there to take a lead against the Prime Minister. And this meant that Darby's proposed alternatives always appeared somewhat weak.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring.
2: Salisbury believed that an escalation of the situation would radicalise both segments of the party, and lead to a with-us-or-against-us mentality in both camps. War would almost certainly lead to Derby's resignation, and would ensure that British foreign policy went out of control in the east. He also believed that Constantinople was in no real danger, since the Russians had yet to cross over the Balkan mountains, and that thanks to Austrian pledges of support, The urge for action on Disraeli's part need not be so hastily heeded. Building up arms and coming out in support of coercing Russia and supporting Turkey would surely precipitate the very war that most wanted to avoid, and so such acts should not be committed to. In declaring such beliefs, Salisbury appeared to be identifying solely with the Peace Party, at just a time when Disraeli needed his support the most. When the meeting of the 17th of December came about, tensions were understandably high. The polar opposites of opinion resembled by Darby and Disraeli were certain to clash, and in this battle the Prime Minister again proved unable to move the ministers, who together represented the majority of the collective wealth and hereditary nobility of the nation. Disraeli, as the outsider in race and breed, was incapable of moving these individuals with his views, which by their definition were contradictory to the conservative ethos. An objective observer would surely have got the impression that cabinet support was slipping away from Disraeli, and that Disraeli's force of personality and argument were having little to no effect. But Disraeli did not give up, instead he hit the ministers with his final card, and appealed to nostalgia. Reasoning that he had remained in his present post only because he thought the party wished it, Disraeli added that he had Led a great party for longer than anyone in English history He thought he knew public feeling And he did not wish again to undergo the pain of parliamentary condemnation And that he Shrank from the results of remaining in her present position Yet if Disraeli thought that the appreciation of the ministers For getting them this far would translate into their Unquestionable obedience He was to be sorely disappointed The ministers remained unmoved only four ministers were now in favour of the action that the Prime Minister posed. In fairness, it wasn't a result that should have been surprising to Disraeli. This was the Conservative Party, after all. They possessed principles and traditions which made them naturally inclined to exercise caution, not adventure. It was why their Foreign Secretary was Lord Derby, and it was why the soundness of holding back was chosen over the suddenness of action. Northcote jumped in first during the meeting, challenging the motives behind taking the action that Disraeli proposed. Northcote was not against mediating or asking for money, but recalling Parliament early would rouse sensation, alarm, and surprise, and would increase divisions in Parliament. Even with the measures Disraeli had asked for, the Cabinet would still be unable to act as one, and its divisions would be exposed for the country to see, which would make it appear weak, not strong money would thus be harder to come by, and the Liberals may be reawakened from their slumber. To Disraeli, these arguments sounded strikingly similar to those of Salisbury, and once Northcote requested that Darby speak, it appeared to the Prime Minister as though the fix was in. Darby tried to calm the mood by expressing our warmth of personal feeling for the Premier, and even proposed a compromise by arguing for a slightly earlier than normal recalling of Parliament. This compromise was ruined by the arguments of the First Lord of the Admiralty, W.H. Smith, though, whose insistence on going over the sore subject of Constantinople and the ability of the navy to push the Russians out of it caused Disraeli to interrupt him and go on a tirade of his own. An irate Disraeli declared that the present negotiations with Russia... We're completely illusory. The object was to keep Russia from getting to Constantinople. This is why we require such large increases in force and why we have to be prepared to send out an expedition. The port should put its case in our hands that we should arrange the terms of peace and press them on Russia. That would be a decided policy. If we were to let the Russians do what they liked, it would be better to have a liberal government in power. It was clear by the end of this stormy meeting on the 17th of December that the cabinet was even more divided, with its members even more opposed to compromise than before. The meeting broke up, with ministers unsure whether they would be able to meet again. With the collapse of Disraeli's premiership apparently imminent, Queen Victoria wrote a horrified letter to her favourite pledging her moral support, but the Prime Minister still had one card in his hand. His ability to bluff meant that he could claim a desire to just form another administration if the Queen allowed it. She would dissolve Parliament and he would be able to rebuild a new cabinet after a few months. It would be a great hassle and a lot of further stress, and Disraeli probably had no intention of really doing it, but so long as this option was there, his colleagues couldn't be sure that Disraeli wouldn't simply torpedo his own administration by resigning to get its own way. And their own fear of what this might lead to i.e. Britain going to war with Russia, could lead them to be more willing to compromise. Certainly, it caused Northcote to write a letter to Disraeli justifying his own stance, on the basis that if the Prime Minister's policies were adopted, Derby, Carnarvon and even Salisbury would resign, throwing the government and country into chaos. Again, the sacred cause of cabinet unity was declared a major motivating factor by a minister. Though Northcote may not have been entirely correct in this, since there was no guarantee that all three peers would stick together, it did encourage Disraeli to pursue the policy of driving the three men apart, or more specifically, driving Salisbury and Darby apart. If the former could be brought over to his side with enough force, then others would surely follow and leave Darby out in the cold. Salisbury also came from a respected family and unlike Darby was known to possess the ambition to inherit the premiership from Disraeli, so he would be worth getting behind if it was your ambition as a minister to one day serve under him, wink wink, nudge nudge. Sending one of his like minded allies to persuade Salisbury, Disraeli then met Darby himself in person on the eighteenth of December. It was here that Darby's exasperation at Disraeli's fondness for the policy of prestige was expressed. Darby accepted that his old friend did not want a war, but doubted he would resist one if the circumstances became riper and the temptation comes his way. After an hour, the two left for cabinet that afternoon without any real progress, though Darby had agreed to call Parliament a little earlier, as he had indicated he would be willing to do in the past. The news from Salisbury's negotiator was also somewhat positive. The bearded wildcard was also willing to call Parliament a little early if it would ease the tensions. Summarising the situation that afternoon, Darby said, The narrowness of our escape from a breakup may induce caution on all sides, but at bottom we are far from an agreement. Darby wrote a letter to Salisbury on the 23rd of December, reflecting on the Conservative principles which governed both men. Relying on Salisbury's own Conservative beliefs, Darby reported from their earlier meeting that Disraeli believes thoroughly in prestige as all foreigners do, and claimed that the Prime Minister would be willing to spend two hundred million pounds on a war if the result was to make foreign states think more highly of us as a foreign power. Such ideas declared the foreign Secretary are not mine, nor yours. This was true, but on Christmas Eve, Salisbury received another letter this time from the Prime Minister. Within it, Disraeli tried to persuade him that he didn't want war, but that his policy simply involved sticking it to the Russians and facing them head-on. A firm front shown by England would terminate the war without any material injury to our interests. I think I could persuade you of this, but I will not dwell on the matter here, Disraeli said. Instead, Disraeli dwelt on cabinet leaks, blaming Lady Darby once again, as well as the revelation of Fred Wellesley the Prime Minister's personal contact in St. Petersburg, who had been placed there, as we saw, by Disraeli in the earlier part of 1877, to communicate to the Tsar the kind of stiff foreign policy, which he couldn't get approval for from the Cabinet. Salisbury remained a cautious neutral in the derby disraeli Civil War, because above all he reasoned that the British Army wasn't ready for a grand showdown with Russia. The grand showdown Salisbury predicted would almost certainly come if the government followed Disraeli's policy to the letter. Furthermore, it was a policy which was still at odds with Salisbury's conservative way of thinking and viewing the world. The national feeling here, though strongly partial to the Turk, shrinks from war and I think with true instinct, Salisbury recorded. Events may force Britain to make war, but such a conflict would be unpopular and unprofitable. So the Secretary for India believed. As far as the cabinet leaks, chestnut was concerned, a weapon which Disraeli liked to pull out of the bag when things weren't going his way. Salisbury took it as unlikely that the weight of rumours swirling around the figure who had once been his stepmother were untrue. He reasoned that Fred Wellesley was fundamentally incorrect when he asserted that Britain should fight Russia now, since such a policy ignored far too many variables and took for granted an outcome which was far from certain. Though he was flattered that the Prime Minister had taken him into his confidence yet again, a further signal that he was being groomed for bigger things, this did not persuade him to abandon his own principles as a Conservative statesman. He was certainly not tied to Derby, but Salisbury did see in him a like-minded member of government, and appreciated that the Cabinet would be ruined were such a Minister as the Foreign Secretary forced to resign. It would be far better to stay the course and compromise as much as was possible, rather than break up the government and hand the reins to a pro-war faction with Disraeli at its head. This advice soon became important, because once Disraeli's temper got the better of him and he lambasted Carnarvon publicly in early January 1878, the latter insisted that unless the Prime Minister apologised, he would have to resign, throwing up a whole range of problems. Here we are on the rocks again, Salisbury bemoaned. And I am afraid we shall have some difficulty in getting off. Salisbury insisted that the departure of the Secretary of State for the colonies would be ruinous for the cabinet at this time, and urged Carnarvon not to resign on account of a rude phrase by a man whose insolence is proverbial. Darby also added to this by insisting that Carnarvon should not strengthen the war party by secession, perhaps not expecting such solidarity for a minister whom Darby had once declared as. Vain, weak and fussy. Disraeli and others put on a false front of forgiveness for the sake of cabinet unity and all seemed forgiven. But no one was truly fooled. The cabinet was on the ropes and another crisis had the potential to set it right over the edge. Carnarvon, Salisbury and Derby continued to be allies into early January 1878 and their existence as a foil to Disraeli was proved yet again when it came time to draft the Queen's Speech. Almost immediately once the contents of the speech were learned of, widespread opposition within Cabinet resulted. It was so bellicose, John Charmley noted in his book Splendid Isolation, that quote, even Darby was willing to set aside his personal fastidiousness about organizing cabals. Darby created a ring of opposition to the speech on numerous grounds so that by the time Cabinet met on the ninth of january eighteen seventy eight, Ministers were well informed enough about its contents to be able to trounce Disraeli's arguments and force him to tone it down. Disraeli did not hide his anger in his messages to the Queen, but at least took solace in the fact that Parliament was being recalled early to hear and deliberate the speech on the 17th of January, and that an increase in armaments and mediation would still be forthcoming. Derby was relieved to have won the Cabinet around, while Carnarvon called it a real victory. Queen Victoria was of course outraged that her favourite had been forced once again to backpedal, and she professed herself to be truly distressed at the low tone which this country is inclined to hold. Victoria wanted Disraeli to take every opportunity to show them that the Empire and even their low, sordid love of gain will suffer permanently if this goes on. What she was referring to was the various ministers' beliefs that the war would cost the country too much and that Britain's material position would suffer. In Victoria's opinion, such a material position was pointless, if Britain's low moral fibre continued to so undermine it. She then, predictably enough, launched into an attack on Derby, whom she declared was "'The real misfortune! Another foreign secretary who felt as he ought would support the Prime Minister!' Though Darby was doing his best, the policy line made him look weak because he lacked the ability to land the killer blow on the Prime Minister. He lacked the ability not because he didn't know what to say or how to go about it, but because of his history with Disraeli and because he had no desire to replace the Prime Minister himself, and this as we have seen has been a common theme throughout Darby's career. Thus he would weaken Disraeli's position to a point before retreating or holding back from finishing off Disraeli once and for all it was made worse by Disraeli's own tendency to bounce back from a setback every time one occurred. Though Derby restrained himself from eroding the Prime Minister's position to too great an extent, Disraeli had no problem stripping the Foreign Secretary of his credibility, and sought to rid Cabinet of Derby with an ever-increasing frequency from early January 1878. As if emboldened by the earlier setbacks, messages from Victoria were received with more regularity from this point onwards. In the 10th of January, she claimed that, I think we may await to hear Adrianople as taken and Constantinople threatened, then England may kiss Russia's feet. While on the 12th of January, just before the most stormy meeting to date, she declared that, We must take a strong, decided stance or England no longer mistress of sea and east. Followed by a rant which insisted that if the cabinet did not take steps to prevent Russian advances to Constantinople, England must abandon her position and retire from having any longer any voice in the councils of Europe and sink down to a third-rate power. On the meeting of the 12th of January 1878, it was Derby and Carnarvon who bitterly opposed the moves made by the Prime Minister, while Salisbury sought to find some kind of compromise. Salisbury proposed that the British fleet anchor in the Dardanelles and demand that the Russians give an assurance that they would not occupy Constantinople or Gallipoli after some negotiation of frustrated Darby, rose from his seat and said that he could not sanction any subjects of the kind and that he must retire from the ministry. In response to this, Salisbury said that, If Lord Darby retired, he must retire too, as he felt that the differences of opinion in the cabinet were insurmountable. While he had only offered the terms of the British fleet anchoring in the first place, To keep cabinet, if possible, together at this moment, as he felt it would be disastrous to the Queen's service to break it up now. When Derby wouldn't propose an alternative policy, Disraeli claimed that it was plain that the government could no longer be carried on, and that Parliament would have to be dissolved. Speeches were then made which suggested that the death of Disraeli's second premiership was imminent. But at the last moment, Darby agreed to a compromise whereby the Turks would be asked if the British Navy could travel up the Straits, and London would see where it went from there. Though Darby made sure to insert the caveat that this Did not imply consent to send the fleet up under present circumstances, Disraeli insisted on an additional caveat which would stipulate to the Turks that We intended to have a voice in the final settlement. The exhaustive intensity of the past two months had, if anything, pulled cabinet further apart than before. While the Russians seemed to threaten the equilibrium of cabinet by planning a second campaign, the rest of the country was preparing itself to hear what the Queen had to say about the situation once Parliament was recalled for the 17th of January 1878. Some feared that, so fragile was the coexistence of the government ministers, Disraeli's cabinet may not even last